You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. People with diabetes are at higher risk for peripheral artery disease. However, the disease may have no symptoms and often go undiagnosed and untreated. Joining us to discuss the link between diabetes and peripheral artery disease is Chief of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at the University of California in San Diego, Dr. Niran Engel. Dr. Engel, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for having me. Let's define what peripheral artery disease is and the magnitude of the problem. Peripheral arterial disease is basically the very same condition that leads to heart attack and stroke, except that it's affecting the patient's legs in this particular condition. What is the link between diabetes and PAD? Well, PAD can happen to just about everybody who gets old enough to have it. However, people who have diabetes are at increasingly higher risk of developing PAD. So that's the main difference between the general population and people with diabetes? Yes, and it's also notable that actually certain ethnicities, particularly African Americans and Hispanics, have a higher incidence of having diabetes and PAD. So there are some very peculiar associations with ethnic background that also predispose you to having this. So if you're under the age of 50, for instance, and you're diabetic and you have, let's say you're African American or Hispanic, you're likely to have a worse outcome than somebody who doesn't fit all three of those categories. These poor ethnic groups, you know, I mean, they get hit hard by diabetes first, and then they have a higher rate of complications. And of course, peripheral artery disease is, is pretty serious. Well, why do people with diabetes demonstrate this pattern? The typical symptom of PAD, the most mild symptom of PAD, is that patients will have pain in their legs when they walk a certain distance, and then when they stop walking, that pain goes away. That is known in the vascular field as claudication. When people walk for a certain distance and have pain and they stop and they have those symptoms, that claudication symptom is a marker for peripheral arterial disease. And you can actually have PAD and not even have that symptom. And just by assessment of your blood pressure measurement at the ankle, there's a reduction in blood pressure measurement at the ankle compared to normal people. So the mildest symptom is that of claudication. And then the most severe symptom is that of having gangrene or non-healing wounds. So the patients that have cuts or ulcers that develop on their feet that you and I would normally heal in a matter of a couple of weeks, these patients with PAD won't heal them for 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks. And particularly patients with diabetes who are predisposed to developing infections, if they get such cuts and they don't heal, that can get infected and that can progress to the point where the patient is facing an amputation of the leg. Well, Niran, you funny you mentioned that because one of the topics of one of the shows we've done is talking about diabetic peripheral neuropathy. So I think that's the worst of both worlds is this, one, you can't feel anything and you're insensate. And two, you have uh, problems with your circulation. Well, what about the risk of amputations in folks with diabetes? We know it's higher, but how high is it? Uh, it's difficult to say exactly the percentage because it depends on what population of patients you're looking at. So those patients who just have, let's say, a decreased ABI, an ankle brachial index, which is the measurement of blood pressure down to the foot, if they just have a decreased ABI and they have no other symptoms, then their risk of amputation is probably low. However, once you develop, if I could digress for two minutes, 
there are two conditions that really place the patient at risk for losing their leg mm-hmm. when you have PAD. One is called rest pain, which is, so in claudication, when they walk a certain distance, they get pain. Well, that's fine, but the patient with rest pain, the reduction in blood flow is so severe even at rest so that they don't have to exercise in order to get pain. They have it all the time. So classically, the patient will be fine or okay during the daytime, and when they go to sleep, because they're laying supine, the gravitational aid that they would have when they're standing is not there. So when they lay flat in bed, they don't get even that minimal amount of blood flow to their foot. Mm-hmm. And that pain is so intense that it wakes them up. And that rest pain patient is at very high risk for losing his leg. Let me just jump in there and ask you, what is the difference in symptoms between peripheral neuropathy at night and ischemic pain? That's a very good question. And in some patients, it's difficult to determine. But in the large majority of patients... Rest pain is severe pain, and it's the kind of pain that no amount of narcotics can get rid of. And the only thing that the patient can do is get up, dangle their foot over the side of the bed, or sit. And that's the only way that they can get some relief of the pain. So these patients will commonly either sleep in a recliner with the foot hanging down, Mm -hmm. or they just won't sleep. And that's why many of them have swollen feet, because they just are never able to sleep comfortably, and so they're always hanging their leg over the side of the bed. With neuropathy, commonly will have pins and needles sensation, or maybe they'll have some anesthetic kind of component, but they won't have the severe pain that is relieved by the aid of gravity, either by dangling the foot over the side of the bed or getting into a sitting or standing position. Yeah, I've always had the impression that pain from ischemia is a lot more intense than some of the pains you get with peripheral neuropathy. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Steve Edelman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Niran Engel. We are discussing diabetes and peripheral artery disease. Well, Talking about amputations, what can we do to help out our patients prevent amputations? That's an excellent question, and that's a responsibility both of the patient as well as the physician. So one of the first things to do is to identify the patient that has PAD, diabetic or not. But particularly in diabetics, one of the most common, easiest tests to do is basically get an assessment of the blood flow down to the foot, and that's called an ankle brachial index. And what you do is you put a blood pressure cuff on the arm and you measure the systolic pressure, whichever the higher one is, whichever arm has a better pressure. And then you put the cuff down on the leg just above the ankle on both both legs. And then you take a little Doppler probe and you get the systolic blood pressure in the dorsalis pedis artery or the posterior tibial artery, whichever one is the higher. A normal patient has an ankle brachial index of 1.0 or a little bit higher. The patient who has PAD will have a reduction in that index, that ratio, down to 0.9 or lower. And it has been shown repeatedly that patients who have an ankle brachial index of 0.9 or less, adjusting for all other risk factors, are at higher risk of dying. So that it is a marker independent of the leg itself of increased mortality. So that identifies the patient who has PAD. So that's number one. Number two is you have to ask the patient about symptoms because sometimes they may not recognize that that's what they're having and they may just attribute it to a variety of different things. So the quantification of it by doing that ankle brachial index identifies the patient at risk. And at that point, you can do all the risk factor modification, which is getting better and better with time that you can speak more intelligently about than I. If the patient has symptoms, then you have to make sure that those symptoms are consistent with that blood pressure measurements and then refer them to a vascular surgeon 
for further evaluation. You mentioned the ankle brachial index. Is that something that a primary care physician should do, or are there non-invasive labs that we could send patients to? The non-invasive labs are the best place to do it in terms of getting a sophisticated study, meaning that in a non-invasive lab, what we actually do is measure pressures all along the extremities. There's a cuff put on the upper thigh, there's a cuff above the knee, there's a cuff below the knee, at the ankle, and even a toe pressure cuff. So we get the pressures and we also get waveforms. So that's sort of the the Cadillac of the testing. But the ankle brachial index, any primary care physician is able to do these tests at the bedside and it's actually very reliable, very reproducible, and it's very easy to do. Do you ever give a dye study to see what happens with their circulation? I'd imagine you've got to be careful for folks with diabetes and kidney disease. That's true, because everything we do in medicine has its costs. But the dye study that you're referring to, an arteriogram, is not necessary unless you're going to do something. The dye study is just an anatomic map of what vessel is obstructed and what vessel is not. It really doesn't provide you any physiologic information that segmental pressure test study or the ABI would provide. Those tests are actually more informative because they actually tell you about the perfusion to the leg. An angiogram is kind of like looking at a map of a freeway. It doesn't really tell you about the traffic on that particular freeway. It just tells you what roads exist and what roads are closed. So an angiogram is not necessary and actually should be avoided unless you're planning to do some intervention such as a angioplasty or an atherectomy or a bypass operation. Let's talk about uh, therapy. What kind of interventions uh, do you vascular surgeons do when you make the diagnosis? Well, it's interesting. The pendulum has swung back to where it swung about five to eight years ago. So the classic thing to do, especially when you have the patient that has tissue loss, or gangrene is to do a bypass. And our ability to do bypasses these days is so different from what it was 20 years ago. Now vascular surgeons do bypasses to vessels down in the foot with diameters of one to one and a half millimeters of vessel size. And we can do that with excellent results with limb salvage rates that are terrific and they last for a long time. So that is the gold standard, Mm -hmm. the bypass operation. We have over the last 10 years or so, with the advent of the endovascular age, we've been doing more and more balloon angioplasties and things such as putting stents in, although stents don't work very well in the lower extremity. We even do something called atherectomy, which is a mechanical way, minimally invasive, of endovascularly uh, shaving the plaque out of the artery. The thing is, the technology has really, really advanced a lot, and we can do a lot more of these things. However, they're not durable. Even though we do them in patients who are high risk, in patients who may not be good candidates for an operation, this is not anywhere near as durable or as reliable in terms of achieving limb salvage than bypass surgery is. What can you do to prevent the vessels from reclotting? The ability of the bypass to stay open still is dependent on risk factor modification. So I think that with the advent of better uh, antiplatelet agents, with the advent of statins, whose effects are quite interesting from a variety of different standpoints, risk factor management, even after a bypass, is critical. And the second thing is then we have to keep an eye on the patency of that bypass operation. So if you do a reconstruction, vascular surgeons have been always of the mind that we should follow these patients till eternity. And so what we do is, on a periodic basis, survey the bypass graft with duplex ultrasound, and we keep an eye on what's happening with that graft. If there is any evidence that the graft is beginning to show signs of restenosis, then we will intervene before the graft goes on to clot off. And it's been shown that that reintervention before the graft fails 
extends the patency of that graft significantly more so than if the graft fails and then we try to unclot it after that. So preventive maintenance, if you want to think of it that way, of that bypass graft, as well as risk factor modification and patient education about exercising and taking care of oneself in the comprehensive way that one should is the best way of keeping patients' graphs open and limbs intact. Well, I am impressed with where we've gone in the last 10 to 15 years. And once again, it comes down to prevention, early detection, and then aggressive therapy and getting patients over to a good vascular surgeon like yourself. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Chief of Vascular Surgery and Endovascular Surgery at the University of California in San Diego, Dr. Niran Engel. Dr. Engel, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Steve, it's a pleasure and thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well... GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes, and like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.